0: Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Amen. 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 Well, church, you're invited to grab your seats and grab your Bibles. We'll be in First Timothy chapter six. First Timothy chapter six, and this is the last week we're spending in our cultural church series and so this morning we're going to look at first Timothy chapter 6 verses 17 through 21 specifically so if you want to go and turn there and as you do just a reminder this church series cultural church we're looking at what kind of church god's called the church to be and that the church takes one of two paths either it's one it influences a culture or that one that is influenced by the culture and so here the apostle Paul is writing to Timothy to correct conduct within the local church, both gathered church and as the church scatters, both corporately and individually. This is a letter that we need to see how it applies to us in the context of the culture today. And today we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17 through 21. If you're taking notes, you can title this sermon Be Rich. Be Rich. Let me start with two questions. I want you to think about this. What are you doing right now that requires faith? What are you doing right now that requires faith? Just think about that, because I'm going to bring it up again in a little while. Don't ask questions, we're going to talk about it. I'm just kidding, we're not going to talk about it. But think about it, because I'm, I'm going to ask again. What are you doing right now that requires faith? And separately, maybe this is what you're, what's going on in your life. What is God allowing you to go through to build your faith. What's God allowing you to go through right now in order to build your faith? Because I think we don't see it like that sometimes. God, why are you allowing this? But what if he's allowing this ultimately to build your faith in him? And that's what we see with the Israelites. You see, God would free the Israelites from Egyptian captivity, and we see this account in Exodus. Exodus. And during this, he, so he, he miraculously frees his people after they cry out to him from the Egyptian captive, captivity. And then he promises them, going back to the promise he made before this, to lead them to the promised land. This promised land, that was promised land because it's agriculturally rich. And he's going to lead his people to this agriculturally rich land to live rich lives. The land he promised them to. But God allowed them to wander, go on this 40-year camping trip until they got to the promised land. The question is, why? Why did God allow them to go on this 40-year journey when it should only have taken 11 days? Why? Simply, they had to learn to live by faith. They were a faithless people, and you see it through the accounts that led these 40 years. They had to learn to live by faith. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 8, you see Moses is leading this people, getting them prepared to actually finally enter into the promised land after 40 years of wandering. And he says this, he says, Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you. They had something to learn. So he might humble you and test you. God allowed them to experience going without in order for them to learn to lean on him alone. They had to go without food in order to see God provide manna. Go without water in order for them to see God bring water out of a rock. That God was their provider. God was teaching them faith and contentment. Faith that the Lord is present with his people and contentment the Lord provides for his people. It took them 40 years. Faith and contentment. And the point remains is that God brings us through these moments so that we know that in any and all circumstances, our faith and contentment is in our provider not in our possessions. Our faith and contentment is rooted in our provider, the one who provides, not in the possessions that we have. And this is a caution that we're going to see this morning. This is a caution that he gives Moses to the Israelites before they entered the promised land. That when life is good, be careful that you don't forget the Lord. When life's going great, be cautious. That's a warning. Enjoy it, but be careful. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 8, verse 12. He says this. And as we go through this, just think through how this applies to us today. He says, When you eat and are full, and build beautiful houses to live in, and your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold multiply, and everything else you have increases, be careful that your heart doesn't become proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water. He brought water out of the flint rock for you. He fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your ancestors had not known, in order to humble and test you so that he might cause you to prosper. And then it says this. You may say to yourself, my power, my ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth. In other words, God has done all this for you. It was not of yourself. I don't know about you, but I can fall into this temptation and look back and look at what all I've done and be pretty proud of myself. When really God has allowed, equipped everything to happen that I've gained and lost, ultimately for His glory, and I can do nothing on my own. It's a reminder that I need him. And so we're so be careful because our possessions can produce pride. I don't use can because possessions aren't necessarily bad, right? But possessions can produce pride. And that's what brings us to verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. So I stalled long enough to give you some time to find it. So hopefully you're there. All right. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. says this: instruct those who are rich. In the present age, not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Now notice that this is written to the rich, also known as you and me. See, this is the danger we fall into. When we hear the word rich, we compare ourselves to like the rich of the rich. But when we look throughout the world, we are the rich of the rich. And so this is an instruction, a command for us to be very aware of. It's written to a local church in Ephesus at a specific time, but the Word of God transcends times and applies right to where we are right now. And I don't know about you, but this applies directly to my life. So I want us to see from this one verse two don't-dos. Two don't-dos. One, do not let your abundance breed arrogance. And what we see here is one of the three sin traps that we see in 1 John chapter 2. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and then what? The pride of one's possessions. Within our family, the Weatherspoon family, we try to create an atmosphere of thankfulness. To be thankful when someone gives you something, when someone does something for you, this atmosphere of being thankful and expressing it. Letting it be known. I, I believe that the awareness that we've, what we've been given and the awareness of our neediness begins to create a heart of humility. And I think that's what thankfulness does. I think we need to be aware of when someone does something for us and express it because it shows, one, that they went all their way to do that thing, and we needed that thing. I think about my kids that, you know, they can't do a lot for themselves depending on their ages. we got all kinds of age ranges in our house. But are they thankful that they're cooked for? Are they thankful that they're provided for? Are they thankful they get new shoes? Are they thankful they get these things because they couldn't do them by themselves? But it brings a heart of humility knowing that we need to be provided for. Proverbs 11, verse 2 tells us that when arrogance comes, disgrace follows. But with humility comes wisdom. So there's a danger with abundance because abundance can breed arrogance. Don't let it. Number two, don't worship your wealth. Now, I know not anyone in here would say that you worship your wealth. I, I get it. No one say, yeah, that's me. I bow down to it. I sing to it. Bless the wealth, oh my soul. No, we don't sing that, right? But even though we don't say it, we wouldn't dare to say it, we often show it. We show it by how we sacrifice to succeed. Let me ask you a couple prying questions. So what I do. I like to pry a little bit. So let me ask you some prying questions. If you were to break down the money that you spend into percentages, where does your money go? Think about that. Mortgage, your rent, car, gas for your car, <laughs> food, fun, clothing. How about this? How much money is spent on yourself versus how much money do you spend directing it towards God's kingdom? Just think about it. How much money is directed to yourself, your family, your interests versus how much money is directed towards the kingdom of God? Or how about if you were to break down your time? The time you spend in percentages, where does it go? The time you've been given, how do you spend it? Maybe it's your work. Probably takes plenty of time. Got sleep? That's pretty healthy for you. Kids' activities? How does that demand your schedule? Recreation, hobbies, family. How about TV? How about your phone? Where do you spend your time? And then the follow-up question, like we did before: How much time do you spend on yourself? Versus how much time do you spend directed towards God's kingdom? Because if we're honest, and we search where we spend our money and where we spend our time, you will show what you treasure. Also known, what you worship. It just does. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying God isn't, against what you have, necessarily. Money isn't the problem. Your huge house isn't the problem. Your expensive ride isn't the problem. You know what the problem is? You, with all due respect. I think if I say, with all due respect, I can say anything I want, right? It's not offensive. With all due respect, it's you. We are the problem. See, the problem is we enjoy the things that God has given us more than we enjoy God himself. And therein lies the problem. Romans 1 tells us that they exchange the truth of God in for a lie. They worship and serve what has been created instead of the creator. And this is a trap we can all fall into if we're not careful and cautious. this is what Jesus says in John 3 to Nicodemus, that how do you have eternal life? You must be born again. Because we have a heart posture problem and we need a new heart. Jesus gets real clear in Mark 7. talks about the outflow of the heart. He says, For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride. And in case that was enough enough the catch all, foolishness. I don't know about you, I can be foolish sometimes. Jeremiah seventeen nine tells us the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? And yet our culture says, you know what? Look within yourself. Search your heart. Follow your feelings. What a lie and a bunch of nonsense! You don't look within yourself. No wonder why we're in the mess we're in because we've been following ourselves, and we know nothing good comes out of ourselves unless God has given you a new heart. So when we start talking about money. And we start looking at our time and how we spend. I think if we're honest, we know we kind of cling to everything we've been given. And I guess my question to you would be, are you inclined to cling more to your cash than you are to Christ? Just be honest. How do we really feel? God knows already. I'm not asking you to tell me anything. I just want you to search your own hearts. Because I've been searching mine for the last several weeks when it comes to this. And it's scary how much I can cling to my stuff and put my faith in my stuff. Ezekiel 36, God tells Israel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statue and carefully observe my ordinances. God does this in us by faith in him. This is the goodness of the gospel. We can do nothing that glorify God unto ourselves. We can't be generous with our time, money, material possessions. We cannot be in a way that pleases God because God has to generate that in us. But when you know God and how good and faithful and trustworthy he is and gracious and loving and the provider and protector that he is, how could we not live with all of our being for him? This is what Jesus is Lord means. When you come to Jesus as Lord, you mean you trust him with everything. Including your bank account. Including your family. We walk around scared. Do we really believe that Jesus is Lord over all? This is the goodness of the gospel. And this is the promise that's open to everyone. That you can have a relationship with the one true God through Jesus Christ. This is for everyone. To all who believe. I just wonder, do you believe it? See, the fear I come in here with every single Sunday is that we have a whole bunch of people that know a whole bunch of things about Jesus. But knowing things about Jesus is different than trusting and believing in Jesus. Completely different. You can quote facts about him all day long. Do you trust him? That's the difference. Do you really realize the gravity of your sin and you were helplessly stuck in your sin? You couldn't do nothing about it and you deserve death, which means eternal separation and eternal hell forever and ever because that's what we deserve. That's our goodness. Like filthy rags what the Bible says, but God did something about it for you. Jesus, living the life that you couldn't live, perfection, paid the price that you couldn't pay to satisfy God's wrath that you deserved. And the only thing that we do they say, yes, I believe you did that for me. That somehow the blood that you shed on the cross counted for me. And that whoever believes in this has eternal life. Have been made righteous because of Jesus' righteousness given to you. And you can't earn it. You just believe it. It almost means so easy that people don't believe it. And we start talking about things, don't miss this. God provides us with things to enjoy. But our joy shouldn't be rooted in those things. And that's what the danger is. I think about just how miraculous God's given us eyes. So think about this. God's given us the ability to see, to be able to enjoy His creation and the magnitude of His beauty. Think about that. When's the last time you just stood in awe of God's creation? On the beach, just looked at the expanse of the water, and you just stood of awe that God has placed it there and is still sovereign over just the greatness of that water. The mountains. How about anybody that's ever had a kid and seen the beauty of that? Mostly. It's not all beautiful, you know what I'm saying. Just stood in awe who God is. Think about our taste buds. When's the last time you really thank God for your food? Now, I don't mean like, thanks, you know, thank you, Lord, let's eat. Like, thank God for giving it to you and the way it tastes. He's like, giving you the ability to taste food that actually tastes good. Have you ever thought about that? How gracious and loving God is to have the ability to taste. I like, just think of that medium rare steak, because that's the only way to eat steak, and it's the beauty of the way it tastes. And the vegetarians, I don't know, what, kale? What do you, oh, the beauty of kale? I don't know. God is good and He's given us things to enjoy. It's amazing. And I don't want to ever walk out here thinking, that God is anti riches. Here's amazing. So listen to this. God actually wants you to be rich. I know I guess people are a little uneasy. God actually wants you to be rich. If you don't believe me? Look at verse 18. He says, instruct them to do what is good and to be rich. Oh, wait a second. It says in good works. That's not what I was thinking. To be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. God is not about against you being rich. He's against you being about being rich. I'm saying say again because I think you missed it. God is not against you being rich. He's against you being about being rich. Do we see the difference? I mean, the underlying question we see here is what are we doing with all that God has given us? Think about it. God has given you a profession. What are you doing with it? Your possessions, the people in your life, how are you spending time and investing in them? Because here's something I had a conversation with someone this week. Two questions really arose. Ask them to you. When you look back at your life, what has it counted for? Someday you're going to look back at the time that you've been given. What have you done with it? What is it shown for? One day we're all going to stand before God. We do believe in him or not. The truth is truth. You will stand before the Lord, all of us. One day. On that day, what will he say when he looks back at the course of your life? How do you spend the time he's given you? How do you spend the possessions, talents, finances that he's given you? When we look at these two verses, I want to give us three easy ways to be rich. Sound like an infomercial, right? Three easy ways to be rich. Here you go, ready? Number 1. Be rich in good works. It drives the question, how are you using your time and talents? Use them to elevate Jesus or using them to elevate yourself. Can't do both. This is what we need to see is that we were created for good works. You were created for this. Ephesians 2 verse 10 tells us, For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for a good work, which God prepared beforehand ahead of time for us to do. You were created for this to do good works. But the question is Why? Why would you crave for good works just for good works' sake? The answer is no. And Jesus tells us why in Matthew 5. He says, Let you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father in heaven. Your good works reflect a good God. At least they should. I'm asking, are they? And James would say that just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also your faith without works is dead. Here's the, here's the truth. Your faith in Christ produces good works for Christ. That's what faith does. You don't try to work your way into salvation. You work your way from salvation. There's a huge difference. You work because of your love for God, which turns in for love of others produces good works in us. We're not trying to earn something. We've already been given it. We don't have to earn God's love. He's already given it through Christ Jesus. When you believe it, he changes us from the inside out. That's why we're not dead. We are alive because of God's Spirit, because what he did in us when you believe. And I'm asking, do you believe that Jesus did that for you, that he paid the price for your sin, so you can live forever with him? So number one, be rich in good works. Number two, be rich in generosity. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 9. We quote it every single Sunday when we give. We give our heart of worship. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 and 7 says this. The point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. Here's the truth that we see. You give generously, you receive generously. And see, the prosperity gospel, that bunch of nonsense, has done damage to the truth of God's word. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is truth and the promises springing from the gospel. Generosity for God's glory for the sake of the gospel is a visible evidence of who your faith is in, in whom your allegiance rests. That's what generosity comes from. And there's a difference. We all are living in part of a kingdom. All of us. You're either a part of the cultural kingdom or you're a part of Christ's kingdom. And both of those teach a different philosophy with our possessions, our money, our times, our talents, and resources. The cultural kingdom says, go and gain for your glory. Christ's kingdom says, go and give for God's glory. Completely different. I guess I'm asking, what kingdom are you devoted to? What king are you following? And the truth we see here is that God says, test me in this way. One way, and that's with your giving. He says, test me. I don't have to twist it. I don't have to. It's in Scripture. I don't have to justify it. I don't have to even explain it. So clear. God says, "Test me in your giving." And when I see us, I want you to think personally, but I also want you to think us as a church family. Are we testing in our giving of all that God has given us? Malachi three verse ten tells us. God says bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing without measure. Proverbs 11, 24, 25 says the person who gives freely yet gains more. Another withhold what is right, only become poor. A generous person will be enriched, and the one who gives a drink of water will receive water. This is the promise of Scripture. You live generously for the sake of God's glory, and he does provide abundantly more than you can even ask, think, or imagine. Am I saying you're going to be the next Bill Gates? I'm not saying that. I'm saying test God and see him show up. I think we see, we don't, if I were to ask you, what did God do in your life this week? Most of the time, you'd be like, well, I don't really know. I don't think he done anything. I wonder if we're really living out our faith and testing God in the way he tells us to test him with our giving and our going, with our possessions. Are we testing him in that way? And it's not like, oh, gee whiz, I'm going to see if he really shows up. It's testing like I'm giving knowing that he's going to show up. Now I love this because in this verse in 2 Corinthians 9, it says God loves a cheerful giver. And that word cheerful is from the Greek "hilaron," where we get hilarious. Now picture this. You're so full of joy in giving, it's hilarious. <laughs> Could you, like imagine, imagine that kind of joy, I'm just giving, like take it, praise God, he's giving so I can give. Joy, and only this joy comes from trusting in the Lord. There's a pastor in the early 1800s. name is Robert Murray McShane, pastored St. Peter's Church in Scotland, and this man was just a man burdened for lostness and burdened for the church to really follow Christ. And he says this, he says, I am concerned for the poor, but more for you. I know not what Christ will say to you in the great day. I fear there are many here in me who may know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none away. Enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. I don't know about you, but that that hits home. Do we love to give in a way that glorifies God and advances the gospel for the sake of others' good? Do we love to give? So we're to be rich in generosity. And thirdly, we're to be rich in eternity. To be rich in eternity In Matthew 19, we have this account where this rich man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gives him some commands, do this, do this, do this. And the guy says, I've done all those. He says, well, awesome. He says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your belongings and give to the poor. Go sell what you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. The man's response? Said he went away grieving because he had many possessions. And I was thinking, I was reading that, and it's funny how our possessions can possess us. Jesus says in Matthew 6 that no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. My question is, are we trying to? Can't do it. There's only one God, and He will not share His glory with anything else or anyone else. And we see a direct connect to how we spend our time and money in the temporary that impacts eternity. Jesus gives this parable in Matthew 25 of the last days when this king, being him, and groups of people standing before him, the righteous and the unrighteous. He says this, he says, Then the righteous will answer him, being the king, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger and take him uh, and take you in or clothes clothing and clothe you? When did you see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Storing up our treasures in heaven and this is one thing so we talked about a couple weeks ago you'll never see a hearse or you haul fall in a hearse right you can't take it with you is what we talked about with the exception of one thing you can take something with you people you can take people with you how do you do that i'm glad you asked the gospel the gospel that's how we take people with us. If you have a love for the Lord, you have to have a burden for those who don't love the Lord. Because eternity depends on it. So why do we share the good news and hope of the gospel? Why does every Sunday I stand up here and beg you to believe the goodness of God's grace in the gospel? Because eternity depends on it. I don't have any motivation for you to, like, I don't earn something. It's not commission-based, right? God's not going to pay me more depending on how much people are brought to heaven. I care for you because there's an eternity waiting and no one knows when it comes. And you have two destinations, an eternal hell that's real in reality or eternal life in the presence of God. And this is not like, okay, I don't want hell, so let me choose heaven. That's not that. It's do you love the Lord or not? And that's only something God can produce in you. God generates that love for him. I'm asking, do you love him? Because it changes how we view Everything. And so when we come to storing up riches, being rich in eternity, I'm asking, how are you leveraging your riches to reach those who are far from Jesus? How are you leveraging your riches to reach those who are far from Jesus? Let me ask you a question. And again, remember, God is not against you being rich. He's against you being about being rich, okay? What if, this is crazy talk, What if you were to actually spend less on yourselves in order to spend more for the kingdom of God? What if you did not get the bigger house so you can give more away? What if you didn't get the nicer ride or the extra boat so that you can actually give, be more generous. What if? I'm not saying God's against those things. Hear me. But what if? What if he's given your time, talents, and material possessions in order to be rich towards the kingdom of God? This requires faith, and it goes back to our original question. What are you doing right now that requires faith from you? What are you doing that requires faith? Are you being generous into a way that actually requires faith? Are you giving your time and actually requires faith? Are you using your talents that God's given you, your giftedness, that actually requires faith so you get outside your little comfort zone? Because we all have them. We're all tempted in these ways. What are we doing right now that requires faith? Are you doing anything? If you're not doing anything, that's a problem. Because what God does is actually pushes you to get outside yourself so you actually trust him. So when you think, man, I don't know if I could do that, it's because you can't. God does, but he has to push you out there so you actually see him show up and provide in ways that only he can. It's a faith on him, not you, and that's our danger sometimes. And finally, when we talk about the treasures we have, we see in verse 20 and 21, there's a greater treasure that we're to guard. Look at verse 20. He says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, Avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. Timothy here is charged with a similar charge that we all have. Guarding the gospel. Now he had a whole bunch of doctrinal issues that he was to guard, but ultimately it centers around the gospel Guard what has been deposited, given to you. Like riches that are deposited into a bank, we have been given the gospel to guard because it is of invaluable riches. And I love how the letter ends because it ends where it begins by God's grace. This whole letter is wrapped in God's grace. All of God's word is wrapped in God's grace. All of your life, believe it or not, whether you're following Jesus or rejecting him, it's wrapped in God's grace, and the evidence is that you're here today. That's God's grace, is that God's giving you another day to live or to know and to live with him. That's God's grace. And so we see the reminder of the richness of God's graciousness. And I wonder if we really understand how rich God's grace is. I'm going to read to you a lengthy passage. And this is how we're going to close. And I'm going to invite you to respond to what God's doing in your life. But it's out of Ephesians chapter 2. Because what Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and 10 says, 1 through 10, is it shows our condition. It shows what God's did. And if you believe that, it shows what we have. And this is all of us. This was all of our story at one point in some of our stories right now. So let this just sink into your hearts right now. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because his great love that he had for us made us alive in Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might dis- display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. My question is, do you believe that? Have you accepted the richness of God's grace? And for those of you that have, I wonder, have we forgotten the riches of God's grace? Because when you remember and live through the riches of God's grace, it changes everything. It changes how you interact with a loving, gracious God and how you treat others in a loving, gracious way. So what are you doing right now that requires faith? And maybe for you, maybe it's stepping out in faith and actually seeing and trusting the Lord Jesus who died and paid the price for your sins so you can live forever with him. I don't know what God's doing in your life, but I'm gonna ask you to respond. So I'm gonna invite our band back up and we're gonna worship some more. We're continuing worship. But here's the deal. When I ask you to respond, I, I encourage you to respond to what God's doing in your life. Because here's what's going to happen. We're, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to sing. And I invite you to respond. Maybe your response is standing and singing praises and worship to a holy God who is worthy of our worship because of his great love, mercy, his generosity, and his riches of graciousness. Maybe you just need to sit and pray and settle some things with the Lord that he's revealed in your own life. Maybe you need to pray with someone around you. We'll have a prayer team over here. We'd love to pray with you and pray for you. We're here to walk alongside you in this faith journey. You weren't meant to do this alone. But what's God doing in your life right now? The main response is if you have yet to put faith in Jesus, not that you know him, know a lot about him, but do you know him as your head connected to your heart to where you're like, I trust Jesus with everything because he's the only one trustworthy. I invite you to respond. I'm going to pray for us and then respond as the Lord leads. Let's pray. Father, we come before you so humbled, humbled, to think about how loving and gracious and patient and merciful that you have been to each one of us, Lord, I just ask that you move right now in our hearts and our minds. That you you build our faith. That you bring us to faith, Father. If anyone's here that has yet to fully trust in you, Lord, I, right now I just ask that you remove. The blindness and the hardness of a heart. Help us to see that we cannot be our own gods, nor were we meant to be. We need you. Show us areas of our lives where we've fallen short, where we've strayed away from you, where we've sinned and rejected you, and remind us that you are faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us for all who confess our sins to you. That we can come to you despite our backgrounds. Of what we've done, where we've been, and that you do not change. And that your blood on the cross satisfied the cost that we owed for our sin. The debt had been paid. It truly is finished. And in you, at the moment we believe, you have given us a new heart. We've been born again. We've been raised to walk in the newness of life in Christ Jesus, now called sons and daughters. And our security in eternity is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Lord, right now I ask that you remind us, that you embolden us, that you strengthen us. Just do a work in us. Reveal in us a heart to where we've held back from you. And let us live lives that are fully devoted to you. Our allegiance rests in you. Our faith is in you. We hand everything over, our professions, our possessions, The people and lives, it all belongs to you, Father. We belong to you. So we just ask that you remind us, that you build our faith, that you bring joy and encouragement because of who you are and what you're doing, the presence that you have with us, Lord. Do a work in this place right now and in us individually, Lord. Let us leave here changed because we've experienced you. Not because we sang a good song, not because we maybe heard a good saying, but we've experienced you because we need you. Father, move in this place, we ask. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to The Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.